Great to be with you. Um, if I remember, some of you have come from down south, right? Was it a, yeah, Austin. So came across this afternoon. All right. Well, welcome. Thanks for coming all this way. So we have two sessions according to our schedule. There's the first learning contentment with a nice picture that has very little to do with learning contentment, but I just uh, thought it was a nice picture. And then the dynamics of the heart. All you romantics, the dynamics of the heart, hardly. Um, so that's what's on tap. So we start now, we go till about six o'clock or before. If things go really well, uh, we certainly won't go beyond six o'clock. 15 minute break. Is that what your schedule is saying? And then back here for 6.15 right through to uh, 7.15. Who's tired? I yeah, I'm, I'm feeling it a bit too, just standing here right now. But uh, we'll pray for strength and uh, trust the Lord will bless our, our time together. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we do come with uh, thanksgiving in our hearts as we consider your many uh, blessings in our lives, both material and spiritual. Maybe even as we come, some of us know each other quite well. Some, we are strangers, and yet we uh, celebrate the common bond of fellowship that we enjoy in the Holy Spirit. What a great privilege, and what a tremendous testimony it is to the reality of the Lord Jesus and His saving and transforming work in our lives. We thank you for uh, Calvary Bible Church opening its doors, for hosting this, for the different speakers who will participate, all who are in attendance, and may it be a, a rewarding time, an enjoyable time, an uplifting time. And we do acknowledge toward the end of the day, weariness sets in. And so pray that you would give us uh, mental, physical strength. Uh, bless us from on high. And may it be for our good, for your glory. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So learning contentment. Uh, the obvious text is what? Philippians 4. I'm glad someone said that. Philippians 4. So turn there just as we get going. And let me read a few verses and it will become obvious why I have landed on that particular title. So Philippians chapter 4 verse 10, Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have, I'm slowing down on purpose. You're catching it, right? I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So he uses, he employs the phrase, I have learned twice. Middle of verse 11, middle of verse 12. He employs the phrase, I know how, twice. Opening statement, opening sentence of the 12th verse. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. What can we conclude from that? I think we can conclude at the very least that this was not something that Paul arrived at overnight. 
I'm a Christian. I'm now content. Right? From one day to the next, one moment to the next, all of a sudden he has entered into this bliss known as contentment. No, his language at the very least hints at, if not downright declares, that this was a process. And it is something that he has learned how to be. Whatever circumstance of life, prosperity, adversity, whatever condition he is passing through, he has learned to be content. Hence, learning contentment, that's our objective, that's what we're after. I'm after it in my own life, because I'm somewhere in my 50s, and I still struggle with contentment. And I'm going to guess most of us in this room still find contentment to be quite elusive. And so we're, we're after just some personal application and learning here, but we also want to be equipped certainly to enter into the lives of others, come alongside and help uh, other believers as we all together learn what this is all about, to be content in every condition and circumstance of life. Why is it so important? Numerous reasons will become apparent as we go through this session together. Let me just give you a couple right at the outset, what I think are some of the most obvious, and they're related to suffering. We live in a fallen world, and we live in a world in which we are going to encounter the consequences of the fall. And at time, times, the consequences of the fall and living in a fallen world will uh, introduce suffering to various degrees, various ways, various manners into our lives. And that is perhaps the time, the occasion when uh, contentment will be tested to the full, to the maximum. Here's the issue. Suffering robs us of patience. It does me anyway. And therefore undermines our submission to God's will. When patience goes out the door, the first thing to follow is joyful submission to God's will. And suffering really puts the finger on it, if you like. It robs us of patience and therefore undermines our joyful, willing submission to God's will. It also robs us of comfort and therefore undermines our confidence in God's power. This is the threat that suffering poses. It is a threat that the devil will leap all over to tempt us. To tempt us to what? Throw off submission to God's will. Why? Because suffering has robbed us of patience to reject, to distrust God and his power. Why? Because suffering has robbed us of comfort. And when one of those two things or both transpire, what is the result? We will abandon the truth or compromise our conscience. That's why it's such a threat. And that's one of the main reasons why contentment is of such importance. So how are we going to handle the subject? How are we in 50 minutes going to learn contentment? Too loud? Just a little bit? Making your teeth chatter back there. <laughs> Thank you. How are we going to handle this? How are we going to learn contentment? In the handout, you'll notice three major headings I want to walk through. First, I want to start with the sin of grumbling and give it some attention. Uh, confessing the sin of grumbling, you'll see that heading. If you flip over a couple of pages, you'll see a second heading, remembering God's name 
I'm just going to give you a few passing remarks there, um, all out of proportion to its importance, because it is extremely important, but time just doesn't allow us to say more than I'm going to say. And then I want to unpack a little book for you called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Yeah? A few of you have read that one? I checked the bookstore. I didn't see any copies. If, but if you, you'll be able to find it on Amazon, probably get it for fairly cheap. Jeremiah Burroughs, he lived a long time ago, 1600s. He is a 1640s, 1650s. He would have been at his peak. Um, fascinating author, very pastoral. And on a historical note, he was one of the five dissenting brethren at the Westminster Assembly. Dissenting brethren because he was of a congregational, congregationalist conviction, conviction over against the Presbyterians. So he was quite a, quite a significant historical figure going back to that era in church history, in English history, but uh, extremely pastoral. And that is a, just a wonderful little book. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Just the word rare, very suggestive, because contentment proves elusive. Rare to find, difficult to learn, but I do recommend it to you. I'm going to unpack it a little bit, and then just some of the major lessons I have learned from Burroughs, from Scripture, and I trust those three major headings then will serve as well. Am I missing anything? I hope not. That's all I've got for you. All right? So there we go, confessing the sin of grumbling. Why start here? Well, we need to deal with the problem and address that which is antithetical to the cultivation of a spirit of contentment, and that is grumbling in all of its uh, different manifestations. Let me make an important clarification here, differentiation. Crying, okay? We've all cried, we cry. And we will cry, crying out. Differentiate between two different kinds of crying. Okay? When our crying is an expression of unbelief, it is directed at the world and expressed in bitterness. Did you get those blanks? Are they big enough? Get that word bitterness in there? When our crying is an expression of unbelief, it is directed to the world and expressed in bitterness. Make sense? Now notice the word change. When our crying is an expression of belief, it is directed at the Lord and expressed in meekness. That is a huge difference. The tears might be the same. The level of grief might be the same. Just the crying out might be the same. And yet there is a marked difference in what? Where it is directed right? The spirit from which it comes and the cause, either unbelief. And in that case, it will be directed at the world expressed in bitterness. If it is an expression of faith, it will be directed at the Lord and expressed in meekness. Next sentence in your handout, simply put ungodly crying is a form of complaining or venting. Whereas godly crying is a form of lamenting two very different experiences we need to learn in our own lives to distinguish between the two and have the God-given wisdom to distinguish between the two in the lives of others. Because if we are unable to identify grumbling, there's nowhere to go. 
Because grumbling must be addressed first and the root of the issue, which is ultimately unbelief and can be other things as well. We'll get there in just a moment and being able to identify those things and address them. We read in 1 Corinthians 10.10, Paul writes, we must not grumble as some of them did. Who's he talking about? The Israelites. From the time they left Egypt till the time they first arrived at the land of Canaan and then turned back grumbling 40 years wandering grumbling even once they're in the land and you're in that era of the judges grumbling 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 and in first corinthians 10 10 paul tells us look they're there for our example we must not grumble as some of them did so right to the issue then what is it what is this grumbling it is says thomas manton the scum of discontent discontent and the vent of impatience it is complaining about god rather than to god or as andrew wilson put it quite well rushing to dump our doubts and questions on friends on family or on facebook without having gone to god is not lamenting but venting grumbling what causes it here are the big five pride We set a high price upon ourselves, impatience, we resent inconveniences, presumption, we think we deserve more or deserve better, greed, we desire something too much, or number five, and this is the key one, this is the most significant one, unbelief, we don't believe God's promises. This is the chief cause, next paragraph, of grumbling. Psalm 78, 22, they, again referring to the Israelites, did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Psalm 78, 32, despite his wonders, they did not believe. Psalm 106, they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. When they're hungry, they grumble. When they're thirsty, they grumble. When they're tired, they grumble. When they see enemies, they grumble. Why? Again, Thomas Manton, they could not believe that the wilderness was the way to Canaan. We could stop right here. You could just take that one sentence, put it on your refrigerator, and you'd be well served. We do not believe that the wilderness is the way to heaven. We don't. I don't. I I mean, I believe it cognitively. I can write it out, sure, and explain it to you. We don't live like it, though. We really don't believe that the cross is the way to the crown. We don't believe that the way to glory is suffering. And um, I think that many times that leads to unbelief in my own life. And where unbelief takes hold, I am but a very small step away from good old-fashioned grumbling, murmuring. So there's the cause of it. Don't worry, folks, it gets better. Why is grumbling so serious? We'll go back to 1 Corinthians 10.10. The Israelites were destroyed by the destroyer. It's pretty serious. Very serious. Why? It tests God. It's related to putting God to the test. These two are inseparable. Murmuring, putting God to the test. Murmuring is a sin that pulls God out of the throne. It denies his sovereignty, power, wisdom, and goodness. Secondly, it disturbs others. Grumbling is contagious. 
Grumblers agitate those who are discontent. So grumbling flows from discontentment and it will prey on others who are similarly struggling with discontentment and it will ultimately disturb them. The result always contention and confusion. Conversely, as we read in Proverbs 26, 20, for a lack of wood, the fire goes out and where there is no whisper, grumbler, murmurer, quarreling ceases. Thirdly, it injures us. Most of our miseries stem from discontentment. Most of our miseries stem, flow from a spirit of discontentment. Having provided one of the most glorious descriptions of Christ in all of scripture, Philippians 2, you know it? Right? That he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, right? And he took on the form of a servant and he became obedient even to death upon the cross. And so we have in Philippians 2 those verses right there with Colossians 1, John 1, and Hebrews 1. You put those four together. And you probably have the greatest Christological portions of God's word. Philippians 2. So Paul takes us to the pinnacle, the mountaintop, in that beautiful description of who the Lord Jesus is, his humiliation, his subsequent exaltation. And what is fascinating is that having given that glorious description of Christ, the very next thing he says in verse 12 is what? Do all things without grumbling. How does he get from Christology and celebrating who the Lord Jesus is to all of a sudden 180 turn in direction? Don't grumble. Because in Paul's mind, there is a direct correlation. That is that spirit of discontent, that spirit of grumbling, that spirit of murmuring, which will be completely antithetical to what, what was his great admonition to put on the mind of Christ. And so enjoying Christ, growing in Christ likeness, appreciating Christ, worshiping Christ, one of the greatest threats, one of the greatest obstacles, one of the greatest impediments will be discontentment and grumbling. Completely contrary, antithetical to the very nature of the Christian faith. Injures us. It ultimately reveals the condition of my heart. It says a great deal about me. It indicates that I've lost sight of God's matchless grace. Here's one of the worst effects. It causes terrible tunnel vision. vision. I can't see anything else. Everything's just focused on whatever it is. It's just that, you know, that pebble in our shoe, just that irritant, whatever it is. And it becomes all consuming and occupies all of our attention. What is the remedy for this grumbling? Let me walk you through five steps taken from the nation of Israel, the Israelites example. First is this. We need to look at what we're doing. The Israelites grumbling is madness. They witness the plagues in Egypt. They witness the pillar of cloud and fire. They witness the parting of the Red Sea. They witness the miraculous provision of food and water, but they are unaffected by it. In some, when I grumble, I have lost touch with reality. I need to stop and look at what I am doing. We need to look at what we're taking in or what we're consuming. 
The Israelites, says they depart Egypt, they are not alone. A mixed multitude also went up with them. And that multitude stirs up trouble in their midst. We must not listen to the rabble. Jude 16, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They complain, they criticize, they murmur. Never content. If we listen to them, we will find ourselves adopting the same critical spirit. Coupled with this, we need to guard our hearts, exercising vigilance. Thirdly, we need to look back. The Israelites forgot so quickly. There were inconveniences in the wilderness, but these were nothing in comparison to what they had suffered in Egypt, slavery. God commands Moses to keep an omer of manna, about two quarts, as a reminder of his faithfulness. It never rots. It is a clear miracle. Yet the Israelites are blind to it. They fail to look back. We must remember God's miraculous provision. As Thomas Manton explains, a good memory is a help to thankfulness. Fourthly, we need to look ahead. The Israelites are constantly focused on Egypt, not the trouble they endured there, but the perceived blessings that they had enjoyed. What should they have been looking for? Where should they have been looking? God's promise, Exodus 3:17, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to a land flowing with milk and honey. We will never be faithful in the present if we're still yearning for Egypt. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. And fifthly, we need to look to Christ. Contentment is not determined by our circumstances, but by what we believe. We must find our ultimate joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, that was quick. Get all the blanks. Confessing the sin of grumbling. I'll pause. Any questions? Pretty straightforward. I've been thinking about how, you know, sin is, comes from more desires. Mm. So if there's a discontentment there, is there a connection there between inordinate desires and contentment? Because if we are content, we won't be pursuing sin. Yeah. Versus a discontent part is pursuing inordinate desires. Yeah, more on this in the second session. But you think of, you know, love. Love has two expressions. Any guesses? If, if, the obje- if I am absent from the object of my love, I experience desire. Don't I? So you're, you love chocolate ice cream? It's not here with you right now. Some of you are now dreaming about it. You are desiring it. Okay, later on, you rush out of here at the break and you get yourself some chocolate ice cream. And what do you experience? Delight, joy. All right. If our love is misplaced on the wrong things, then our joy will be attached to the wrong things and ultimately can never be what? Satisfied. And the result will be discontent. So discontent arising from inordinate love or misplaced love, mismanaged love, ill-directed love. But that's ultimately then, if love is not rightly oriented according to God's word and God's good design for us, then desire and delight will be all out of whack and all you're left with then is discontentment. All right, does that make sense? More on that later when we get into the dynamics of the heart. 
a little bit of what's coming. Anything else that makes sense? The sin of grumbling? All right, remembering God's name. Um, quickly, I, I will make a book recommendation, and to my shame, it's actually going to be a book I wrote, but I make, I make like 17 cents a copy, so don't be thinking I'm, you know, ching, ching. Um, remembering God's name, the path of life, blessedness in seasons of lament. And so how, it's Psalm 119. And so how we walk through life, um, following the psalmist's example, keeping our eyes fixed upon the Lord, remembering God's name. It's Psalm 119, verse 55. And so what it means to cultivate uh, heavenly mindedness, a God-focused life, love for God, who he is, so that desire and delight are rightly oriented as a remedy then to discontentment. So just a brief synopsis here. There's the statement out of Psalm 119. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. And I think that's extremely significant then when it comes to confessing the sin of grumbling and cultivating or learning contentment. Notice three things. How we remember. I remember your name in the night. We remember, says Thomas Manton, when God, God, when we stir up in our minds clear and heartwarming apprehensions about his nature and will. So that's very important when it comes to learning contentment, confessing grumbling, learning contentment. You'll see why in just a moment, but that's how we remember. It's a, it's a conscious, deliberate Active stirring up of the mind, dwelling upon through the study of scripture, through the singing of songs, anything that infuses into the mind these biblical realities. Why do we remember? I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. So by remembering God's name, it leads to, it encourages obedience. Remembering opens the door between the head and the heart whereby the spirit makes deep impressions upon our affections. He cultivates love for God, thereby making sin repugnant to us. All told, this means that remembering has a transforming power in it. And what do we remember? I remember your name. God's name is simply who he is. God's name is simply the revelation, declaration of his very essence I would submit to you that when it comes to this twofold calling to confess and forsake grumbling, learn and cultivate contentment, there are two truths in particular that ought to be front and center. There's the first, remembering God's particular providence, that the Lord is king forever and ever. And there's the second, remembering God's steadfast love in the language of Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. When we remember these truths, they become enlivening. So God's particular providence God's steadfast love. I mean, there are others, but those two, I think far excelling and exceeding all others 
lend themselves to cultivating greater trust, greater faith, greater dependence upon God, and therefore ultimately a greater spirit of contentment. Went through that quickly. That book, I do recommend it if you're interested more on this. So I just kind of inserted it there because it is important, but that's an entire session on itself. I can't remember, do we offer a session on God's providence? No. Do we offer a session on the doctrine of adoption? Okay, there's some changes coming. Um, Do we offer on the doctrine of God? Try to remember. Okay, this is not going well at all. Because I was going to say, take those lessons and download them right here. But maybe we do need to add a lesson or two then. Because when it comes to... it's, It's also true of grief counseling... When it comes to even dealing with habitual sin, when it comes to true confession and repentance, when it comes to cultivating contentment, so many things, I think you can draw a direct line between them and those two realities, God's particular providence and God's steadfast love, that our handling of these things and our addressing these peculiar circumstances, situations, sins, whatever it may be, um, they will be proportionate to the degree to which those two truths are lively in our lives and cultivating them particular providence god's fatherly steadfast love they are the remedy for so much of what ails us so next year stay tuned maybe uh we'll need to insert a session on that okay any questions on number two went through it quickly because this is where i really want to camp out number three there he is jeremiah burroughs looks like he was dressed for halloween there he is Any questions so far? Haven't lost anybody? All right. The rare jewel of Christian contentment. His text is the verse we read out of Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He divides the book into two major sections. The first, the nature of Christian contentment. And so go with me to those two passages of scripture to see what he has in mind first timothy 6 verse 6 now says paul there is great gain in godliness with contentment for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Interesting. Over to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Hebrews 13, 5, the author of the epistle writes, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So the nature of Christian contentment, some some obvious truths just emerge from those two texts coupled with Philippians. That Paul is dealing with the language we used earlier with inordinate desires. 
desire for something that ultimately was never intended to bring satisfaction. And therefore it causes this spirit of contentment, discontentment, as opposed to recognizing who God is, as we just read in Hebrews chapter 13, what was it? Verse five. Oh, I've lost it. I'm back. And anybody still got it open? What does he say? And so focusing on who God is, his faithfulness, again, his unwavering, steadfast love, that those are the two elements that emerge from these texts. That is what Jeremiah Burroughs jumps all over and unpacks then in this book. So he explains the nature of Christian contentment, gives a very helpful definition there in your notes. Christian contentment is that inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit. Now notice what he says. And this is, this is bothersome to me, which freely submits to, okay, I can stomach that, and delights in, yeah, no thanks, delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition, whatever it may be. That's tough right there. That's, that's, a, that's grace. That is the working of the Spirit of God in us cultivating that kind of inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. It is inward. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's quiet. It's opposed to murmuring, repining, uh, an unsettled, unstable spirit, distracting, consuming cares, sinking discouragement, sinful shiftings, desperate risings of the heart. It is gracious, a grace that spreads itself through the whole soul. It is a frame of spirit. When a Christian is content in the right way, the quiet comes more from the temper and disposition of his own heart than from any external argument or from the possession of anything in the world. It's not natural. It is the result of the Holy Spirit's work. And it submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So he spends a fair part of the book unpacking that definition in great detail And then he hones in on what Christ himself has to say about contentment. There are the main lessons. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Key lessons Christ teaches us. The first is this. If we're going to learn contentment, we must learn the lesson of self-denial. A man who is little in his own eyes will account every affliction as little and every mercy as great. Vanity of the creature the knowledge of the one necessary thing. I should be glad if God would give me them, a fine house, income, clothes, advancement for my wife and children. These are comfortable things, but they are not the necessary things. I may have these and yet perish forever, but the other is absolutely necessary. The knowledge of the soul's relationship to the world. So the idea that we are a pilgrim, stranger, traveler, soldier. The knowledge of the creature's good, the knowledge of one's heart, the burden of a prosperous outward condition, the evil of being controlled by the heart's desires, the right knowledge of God's providence, its universality and efficacy. He concludes the book. I've spent many sermons over this lesson of contentment, but I'm afraid that you'll be longer in learning it than I have been in preaching of it. It is a harder thing to learn than it is to preach or speak of it. All right, so there's a synopsis of the book. 
few golden nuggets in there that will be profitable to the soul. But the best thing I can do is recommend that you spend the $7 or whatever it's going for these days. Put it on your Christmas wish list. It's not that far away. And uh, read and devour that book. It's a great, great resource. What I want to wrap up with are the six key lessons as I see them. Uh, from the book of Philippians. I stay in Philippians because that's the text you know, where Paul declares, I have learned twice. I know how twice. Well, what is there in the book of Philippians that tells us what he has learned? What does he say in the book of Philippians that indicates something of Paul's thinking that points us to what it is he perceives, he understands, he gets, he has learned that now enables him how to be content in each and every circumstance of life. You understand the question? So I have mined Philippians and I have come up with six major answers. There's the first. We must learn to practice thankfulness. If we're going to be able to say with Paul, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content, we must learn to practice thankfulness. Look at what he says back in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. You can do this little study on your own. Read Philippians, four chapters in their entirety. Note every reference to rejoicing, thanksgiving, thanks, joy, whatever. Numerous references and tremendous emphasis on cultivating this practice, this discipline of practicing thankfulness. We must consciously, I write in your notes, and constantly decide to do this because we struggle to keep things in perspective. Now you remember, I mean, as I've thought about this, it's, I mean, I might be pushing it a bit here, but he's writing to the Philippians, right? Philippi. He's been in Philippi. Do you remember what happened when he went to Philippi? Lydia's converted, right? And then he's in jail. It's because, is it because he cast out the demon from the little girl, wasn't it? Is that why he ends up in jail on that occasion? I think it is. He and Silas end up in jail in Philippi, beaten first, thrown into the inner cell, in the stockade, chained. And it's the dead of night. And we read, is it Acts 16? Um, the dead of night, having been beaten, chained, imprisoned, that Paul and Silas do something. They start singing praises to God. All right. Did they feel like it? Probably not. They consciously turn themselves to what? To thanksgiving. And so when Paul says here to them, you know, uh, finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. This isn't flippant off the cuff stuff. This is something he's learned. That in every circumstance of life, whether I, I feel like it or not, and many times I do not, uh, we turn ourselves deliberately to making a list of all the reasons we have to give thanks. As we take stock of our lives and all the spiritual blessings which are ours in the Lord Jesus, all that awaits us in glory. And we consciously and deliberately offer up praise to the Lord. Oh, discontent, writes Thomas Watson, is an ungrateful sin. Because we do have far more mercies than afflictions. If it was the old children's chorus, count your blessings. Yeah, come on. How long has it been since you sung that one? 
Count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Here's the second lesson. We must learn to cultivate heavenly mindedness. We must learn to cultivate heavenly mindedness if we want to learn contentment in every condition of life. Look at what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's the only thing that got me through the recent election. Our citizenship is in heaven, right? So I can go, I can cast my vote and get on with my life because our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's absolute certainty that the Christian life ends well, but it doesn't always go well. Heavenly mindedness. We are saved, awaiting salvation, redeemed, awaiting redemption, adopted, awaiting adoption. And I write in your notes, investments can evaporate, houses can crumble, jobs can disappear, relationships can sour, and health can fail. And it will fail. Hope is the confident expectation of glory based on the unchanging word of God. So cultivating heavenly mindedness, I think that's the second thing Paul did in order to learn to be content. I think the third is this, we must learn to trust God's providence. We've already alluded to that subject a couple of times. But look at what he says in chapter 1, verse 29. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, ouch, but also suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. The unshakable certainty that wild confusion may reign around us. Yet the hearts of the righteous rejoice because God is not and cannot be dethroned. And so as we focus on God, we can echo the cry of the psalmist, Psalm 25, verse 2. Oh, my God, in you I trust. We trust him because he is wise. Can any teach God wisdom? The answer is a resounding no. He is all-knowing, and that's reason enough to trust him. We trust him because he is sovereign, unperturbed by the apparent chaos on earth. He does not fret. He does not panic. He does not worry. And we trust him because he cares for us. Paul had learned that. He had learned to trust God's providence. And I'm sure that was one of the key elements in learning contentment. Here's the fourth. We must learn to wait for God's promises. Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So that's number four. Learning to wait for God's promises. He has promised eternal spiritual blessings unconditionally. And he has promised present temporal blessings conditionally. These present day blessings are provided based on what he deems best for his eternal glory and our spiritual good. And he alone knows what is best. And fifthly, I think this is what Paul had learned. To follow Christ's example. And that's why he exhorts us in Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves. Which is yours in Christ Jesus. What mind is that? We already referenced it 15, 20 minutes ago. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
emptied himself. The humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Why is that so important to contentment? There it is. Pride fuels discontentment. Humility fuels contentment. We know we're debtors. We know that anything short of God's judgment is a mercy. And we know that he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. And sixthly, Paul had learned what it meant to treasure Christ. We must learn to treasure Christ in order to cultivate contentment. And look what he says in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ, to learn to treasure him, that we are pardoned in Christ. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. We are God's friends in Christ. You are my friends if you do what I command you. You're under God's providential care. Paul says you are Christ's and Christ is God's. We enjoy sweet experiences of God's goodness in the world. As James reminds us, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. We know the God of peace, Philippians 4, 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. We're sons of God. That's what it means to treasure the Lord Jesus. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. We are heirs of God. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness treasuring the lord jesus above all else for me to live is christ to die is gain back to your notes right at the bottom of page seven if we place disproportionate value upon things in this world they will capture our heart's desire but they can never satisfy us the final word to jeremiah burroughs the reason you have no contentment in the things of this world is not because you don't have enough of them but because they cannot satisfy your immortal soul. You are like a man who tries to satisfy his hunger by opening his mouth to swallow the wind. He thinks the reason he's still hungry is because he has not swallowed enough of the wind. All right, folks, any questions on any of that with 10 minutes to spare? That's pretty good. Get all the blanks filled in. All right, then just before we break, let me finish what's on that board. And I think it might make a penny drop. Consider everything we've just pondered together. And it will set the stage, set the context for our our next session together after the break. So love, two great expressions, inclinations. When the object of our love is absent from us, we desire it. When the object of our love is Present with us, we delight in it. What is the opposite of love? Hate. When the object of our hate is absent from us, we fear it. And when the object of our hate is present with us, we grieve or sorrow on account of it. Right? So you gave the example there of chocolate ice cream. Sticking with food, you give the example of uh, 
Liver. Yeah, I'm feeling that. Brussels sprouts, beetroot, all that stuff. Do not like it. And uh, coming home as a teenager, I was a young man from school, and uh, my mum, very English, very British, she loved her turnip and Brussels sprouts and beetroot and everything else. And on the way home, oh, I hope that, oh, I hope it's corn tonight or something edible. Just this fear of that food and get home, open the door, just waft. I can smell it. <laughs> Sit down and there's my parents just savoring these things. And I'm just sitting there at the table. All right. You get the idea, right? That is how we go through life. There are certain things we deem to be good and we set our love upon them. And there are certain things we deem to be bad and we set our hate upon them. And this is how we make decisions. If I decide something is good, I've set my love on it. If I'm absent from it, I want it. I desire it. If I'm present with it, joy. If things I say are bad, if I'm absent from it, I fear it lest it comes a little too close. And if it does come too close, I experience sorrow, grief. In the context then of contentment, what happened at the fall? Love for God was usurped by what? Love of self. What does that do to these four primary affections, inclinations of the heart? Throws them completely out of whack. There's the root cause then of discontentment. Our love, driven by love of self, is ultimately set upon objects that were never intended to what? Satisfy or bring contentment. The great struggle then as a believer is what? Well, we've been born again. Therefore, that new principle of love for God has been implanted in our hearts. Love of self has not gone away. It's called the battle between the flesh and the spirit. Just simply the battle between two principles. Love of God, love of self. Two semi-intact motivational systems. And discontentment will rear its ugly head whenever the flesh rears its ugly head. And inordinate self-love is active. And the way to squash that inordinate self-love and deal with contentment is ultimately the very last point in the handout, treasuring Christ and loving Christ, which sets then the affections of the heart on their proper object, well-ordered, and cultivates that rare jewel of Christian contentment. Does that make sense? All right. We're going to come back to that after the break because that is related directly then to the dynamics of the heart.